0: Hello and welcome to today's podcast episode. To you who are listening and to our guest today, Dave Mitra.
1: Hello and thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Great. You're in London, are you?
1: I'm in London. When- I'm at the London Buddhist Centre uh, where it's a bit gloomy today, but not too bad. At least it's not cold as it has been.
0: <laughs> well, it's really lovely to have you here. Um, we published your book, which is called Entertaining Cancer. The Buddhist way mm. in February this year, February 2022. So it's a couple of months since um, since the book came out, and I thought it'd be a really good time to catch up with you to find out a bit about how that's been going, and uh, and I suppose look at the book uh, in a bit of a broader context. So for those people who haven't yet encountered the book or had a chance to read it. Um, it's It's not your biography, but it is a memoir of a very particular time in your life. I wonder if you could just say, <laughs> sort of in a way what what happened, what you were writing about?
1: Well, I started writing because um, I'd been diagnosed with cancer. and uh, it, 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 partly what what happened actually was it, was it sounds a bit bizarre, but the first few meetings I had with doctors, were rather amusing in a strange sort of way. And um, I can't resist humour. And so I Decided to write about that. I I tried to sort of write about my experience of being diagnosed, from with very much with my natural sense of humour, which does sometimes get out of hand. You'd be amazed at what's been cut out of this this uh, document. Uh, But um, um, but uh, some of the humour works. I mean, I was speaking to someone just the other day who's just started reading, and he's a theatre director, and he he said, "Look, I've I've been laughing out loud, David Mitra." I said, "Well, that's great. That's what you're supposed to do." So it was part. Partly, um, just I can't resist anything, which which gives me an opportunity to exploit my humor. And so that's what I did. But of course, there was more to it than that. Um, I was very, well, I, I suppose I've always remembered the opening lines to the Bodhicharya Vatara where Shanti Deva says, there's nothing original here. I'm just doing this basically to, for the purposes of clarifying my own mind. And that was part of what what I wanted to do as well. So it was quite complex. Um, uh, I wanted to objectify my experience. I wanted to better understand it. And I think always, perhaps, well, probably always at, at the back of my mind, some, my mind somewhere was the possibility that what I wrote might be of help and benefit to others. Um, so all those things were at play. Uh, As you can imagine, being diagnosed with a serious cancer is, uh, you know, it's it's not something which happens every day, fortunately. Uh, Unfortunately, it's happening frequently, more and more to other people. I've met so many people in in the last few weeks who've got cancer or who've had it, uh, uh, some whose cancers have metastasized, as mine has now, and so on and so forth. So um, there's there's quite a – it's got a whole new world that I've entered, really, uh, the world of cancer, its treatments, its patients, uh, its doctors, and um, I found, found the whole process absolutely fascinating.
0: So you got this diagnosis. It was prostate cancer, right?
1: Yeah. It was uh, fairly advanced prostate cancer. Stage 3b. Stage 4 is terminal. It wasn't terminal at the time I was originally diagnosed, though it was on the edge. um, And it was treated urgently because I had two infected lymph nodes. And it, it was important that they were targeted quite hard uh, because with that if they weren't then there was a very strong chance that it would metastasize and that would be the end of things um, so the radiotherapy that I received as part of my diagnosis hit the lymph nodes particularly hard I was told and that caused me all sorts of problems with, with the strength in my legs because the prostate of course is is, lo- is located um, right at the, the well just, just the top of your thighs really just above the top of your thighs so um that the uh, lymph nodes serve the purpose. I, I was told of sending fluid down the legs, which you know gives them their energy partly. So my, I was really severely um, incapacitated by that.
0: So the story starts in late twenty sixteen with this diagnosis, and then carries on for. Well, pretty much three years within the story of the book, isn't it? In the in the narrative of the book, of the of the diagnosis, of the clarification of the treatment, as you say, of both uh, radiotherapy and chemotherapy, and then you know,
1: and (laughs) and hormone therapy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
0: Um, So you got it all. You got that. You got everything sort of thrown at that body of yours. Um, Yes. And then the story in the book. Uh, finishes up sort of around early twenty twenty, isn't it? Where you're sort of in a way recovering from the treatments as much as recovering from the cancer. Yes, it's a it's a very engaging book to read. Um, uh, it's a great title, "Entertaining Cancer." We'll we'll come back to the humor dimensions uh, a few times, I imagine. But one of the things that really struck me when I first uh, read it in manuscript form, and also it's one of the things I can see picked up in the conversations you've been having, is that you're a you're a strong personality, David Mitra, in the sense that um, not, you know not only your not only your sense of humour, um, but there's some very very striking moments in the book. Um, for example. Uh, you, you had, a, you have had throughout this sort of story in 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 our engagements, this thing that actually maintaining a positive mental state is sort of the primary thing. Yes. Uh, to do, and you've been incredibly strong in doing that. And um, you had uh, so, so I'd I'd kind of like to explore that a little bit with you. And um, there's a there's a a story you tell in the book where when you were a young man, you were an actor in your 20s and you were um, in a training programme of some sort and the director, uh, sort of almost as a a way of pushing the students, said, you know, what would you not be willing to do on stage? And you said nothing.
1: That's right. (laughs) And I meant it too.
0: (laughs) I believe you. (laughs) So I suppose... um, What I'd like to know is sort of what shaped you even before you came into contact with Buddhism? In this book, a lot of what you draw on with your resources for engaging with your cancer diagnosis is your Buddhism, is your Buddhist practice. But it sounds like something else shaped you even before that.
1: Well, I, I suppose for, for anyone who's um, well, a practicing Buddhist, the whole issue arises, well, what, what did you bring with you from a previous life? And I've often wondered about that. And um, w- one of the things that, that struck me looking back over my early life was that I knew from a very early age as meant for the stage. Um, it was almost as if it was in my bloodstream. Um, that's where I wanted to be. The first time I was taken to see... Uh, a show it was a variety show by my grandmother uh, nothing grand and uh, I was 4 years old and I just loved it and I kept we kept going back every week to the Middlesbrough Empire to see the the local comedians and singers and dancers and all the rest of it but I just felt I wanted to be up there with them and so that that sort of drove my life really I mean by the time I was 11 or 12 I think I played I I took part in my first play where I was given the main role, and I was told that um, uh, because I was an academic failure all round, but um, at this school, they said, Well, He's. We think he's very talented. He should perhaps think of becoming a professional actor, uh, which was no surprise to my parents. Although it did horrify them. And then this this uh, another teacher of mine later on said he thought, look, you know, have you ever thought about becoming a professional, professional actor? Of course, I, all, I was always thinking about it. What I wanted to be, and so um, that that was the main driving force in my young life. Um, but it was not easy for all sorts of reasons. Um, firstly, I come from a very traditional working class, Northeastern working class background. Uh, My parents had very humble origins. Uh, I grew up in the back streets of Middlesbrough, which was pretty tough um, at the time. And uh, the first 10 years of my life were in Teesside, which is not a pleasant environment um, one of the most heavily polluted environments, um, at that time anywhere. I mean, I lived on a housing state, which later was conde- condemned uh, as unfit for human habitation. Um, so, you know, I was, I was, I was breathing in this terrible, all this terrible air. Um, so it was a very, it was a very sort of, um, it, it was, yeah, it was not, um, not the most pleasing environment, but I was very fortunate in that both my parents were very loving. I didn't have any brothers or sisters. Um, I meant everything to them. And they looked after me very kindly. They were very generous to me. Um, But I was always a bit of a sissy, insofar as I was very easily provoked to tears. Um, And this was very, very embarrassing for a young boy. And it meant that I was prone to being knocked around by the other kids. And uh, you know, because they knew, well, it was very easy to make me cry, which was so embarrassing. Um, I think that that's partly, it, it connects with the theatre, though, because um, one <laughs> someone who's known me for a very long time um, said to me one, one one day fairly recently, he said, look, David Mitrick, you are the most emotional man I've ever met. And um, that's probably true. Um and um, well, I mean, I don't know. He's, he knows he's quite an emotional person himself. Actually, there might have been an element of projection there. But but um, I know that I'm very emotional, and I think that to succeed as an as an actor. You need that. Uh, a lot of actors are really boring to watch because they're so emotionally dead. Um, and I've talked with directors about this, and they say, "Well, you know, what, what you really need from an actor is someone who's emotionally alive." Uh, and I always was. And it was, that meant I always took things to extremes. I pushed myself, and I, and I allowed directors to push me. But what caused me to have that—the attitude that you're asking me about—I've no idea, really. I think it was—it seemed to be in me. Uh, and I think it carried over into my Buddhist practice because I could see there was a, a positive place for that within practice of the Dharma, which is, um, you know, you, you just tackle differ- difficult things. And many of the things that I've done in my life I've not wanted to do. And some, have been, some of them have frankly been rather foolish, um, but um, at least I've been open to sort of um, exploring life fully. I've lived, I think I've lived life pretty fully. I think it's partly because I have this kind of attitude. When the director concerned who asked me that question was a man called Michael Jelliot actually, quite a famous director in his day. Um, And he uh, shortly afterwards became the artistic director of the Welsh National Opera. I got on with him very, very well, but I could see that he really wanted to push all of us pretty hard, which is why he was asking that question. And, um, he got us to do all sorts of exercises in preparation for the production we did with him that, um, uh, pushed us, pushed us really hard psychologically and emotionally. Um, and I really enjoyed that process. Uh, I didn't always find it easy. In fact, at times I find it excruciatingly painful, but I I wanted to do it because I wanted to succeed in my chosen line of work. I knew that that line of work was very tough. Um, You're told when you go to a drama school that 90% of students never work, they never even get their first job. And that's a fact, it remains the case today. Possibly it's even worse than that. And that another 90% of those who do work leave the profession within five years. Now, there are all sorts of reasons for that. But I knew I was entering a tough profession and I was beginning to succeed very well in that profession, but it was making me unhappy. I didn't quite know why. And I knew that I had to leave it all behind me. I didn't know where I was heading. But I think that, of course, I knew I was looking for something and eventually I found the Dharma uh, and the friends of the Western Buddhist order. And so all that energy went into my practice of the Dharma. Uh, so that's what, um, that's what's conditioned me. I perhaps brought it with me from a previous life. I mean, who knows? Um, of course, local factors in this life would have uh, affected that as well. Living, uh, living in a pretty tough environment for the first 10 years of my life, and even a bit later, uh, probably helped. You have to toughen up. And I, I always try to toughen up I also remember, you know, Bante on one occasion saying to us, "Look, you know, if you want to practice the Dharma, you've got to be tough." And looking at the way that some of his teachers lived uh, their lives, uh, I can see that in them, and I could see it in him too. We think about his early life, so it all made sense to me, and I, I, I took very much to heart the fact that he said he thought far too many of us let ourselves off the hook. Not only that, worse still, we let our friends off the hook far too easily. (laughs) So that's part of my background. Whether that amounts to my my strength of character or or what you mean by strength of character, I don't know, but it's certainly very much part of me. I'm uh, I'm a big personality, partly because I'm I'm an actor, and actors do things writ large. Uh, It's just ingrained in you, really. (laughs) So those elements as well.
0: I'm curious. It's such an interesting combination that you're speaking about of this kind of toughness and and the emotional sensitivity. It's an unusual combination, I suppose, to be able to retain both through your adult life. I'm wondering what it was in the Dharma or in your interactions with the Buddhist Sangha at the time that Uh, That drew you so strongly because as you say you you stopped being an actor and you sort of gave up on that dream or you decided to turn away from that dream towards what has been a life in which you've had a lot of roles and responsibilities and done a lot of teaching and and really had a really full life as a Buddhist Mm. teacher.
1: Yeah and it's also been pretty tough as well I have to say Um, but um, at times not all but at times I think that the emotional sensitivity you're talking about is something which slowly emerged. Uh, I think I was pretty insensitive when I was young. Um, I've been telling this story quite a lot recently, but I recently stumbled across uh, a video of a talk I'd given at Padme Luka way back in the 80s. I mean, in my mid to probably mid-30s, and I very foolishly watched it. At least I watched the first ten. Well, it might have been. I think it was less than ten. It was about two minutes, and I just couldn't stand it. I, I, I thought, no wonder people reacted. <laughs> and so I stopped it. But um, I think that. You know the, the the thing about me, as my friends keep telling me, my emotions are very much on the surface, uh, whether they're insensitive ones or whether I'm responding sensitively to people. I do seem to have both capacities. Although I hope that the insensitivity has has um, dwindled during the course of my life. I hope that the energy behind that has been transformed. It was. I think it probably has. Um, there's still a few rough edges here, rough edges here and there. I'm not the complete polished product by any means. I'm far from it. Far from it. But I think there's been a significant change in the course of my life.
0: It's lovely to hear a bit more of that wider picture. And in a way, you've been talking about how you are in the world in relationship with other people. I can imagine that facing a diagnosis, a serious diagnosis of cancer, some of those same threads would be there for you internally. Like, how do you deal with your own sensitivity? How do you deal with your own pain? How do you deal with your own energy? Um, and in a way how do you how do you engage with the impact of something like that humor is obviously one
1: yeah well i, I suppose I, I never really thought that much about it i mean as, apart from the fact that i knew i had to be very careful and make sure i maintained skillful mental states and i tried to do that throughout uh, and it wasn't that difficult but i think it was not that difficult partly because i've been practicing the dharma for 40 odd years and um I'd learned a thing or two in that in that time um Um, but it's also partly the nature of the experience itself. Uh, it's oddly, many people say, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, it's serious illness of whatsoever kind has had a very, very positive impact upon them because it shifts your perspective. And I think it's shifted my perspective. It pushed it along a bit further and, um, opened, well, opened me up to even more, uh, possibilities and ways of seeing things and interacting with people. But I don't know that I consciously did anything other than try to maintain skillful mental states. Uh, I was blessed, of course, with supportive conditions. I was living at Sakavati, one of the men's communities above the London Buddhist Center. I had very many good friends around me. Many people came to visit me. So that all that helped. Um, so it was not just internal support. It was also external supports, Um but yes, I mean it, it, the core elements, I suppose, of my character were well in place by the time this happened, and 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 it had been sort of honed a bit by my practice of dharma.
0: When I when I first read your manuscript, it reminded me very much of the, uh, you know, of the eight no, the noble eightfold path, the middle bit that says right effort, is a, a about. Uh, uh, I suppose preventing the or eradicating negative mental states from arising, and and really generating and supporting positive mental states—the kind of what you're talking about as skillful mental states—and it sounds to me, well, what you were saying is that it wasn't actually that difficult, which is pretty amazing.
1: Well, it it, it wasn't. And well, I was pretty I was very surprised myself in a way. But I think when when you're in such a, let's say, an existential tight spot. Uh, it can go either way. It can stimulate the best in you or the worst in you, and I, I hope that it stimulated the best in me. I feel that it did. Uh, certainly my friends uh, who were with me at the time would echo that. Um, but um, uh, it it just didn't seem that difficult. You know, it's um, it, it's very often the case, it seems, in life, that people under the most extreme circumstances... Uh, well, some people, anyway. What brings, what is brought to the surface, is, is um, their hidden resources. Uh, they respond far more positively than even they themselves would have expected. And I would say that was true of me. I mean, I, in, in, that was my experience. I thought, well, you know, I'm dealing with this rather well, and uh, it just seemed to get better. Um, and that has been a continuous process for me. It's never changed. Um, I'm not saying that I don't lapse into unskillful mental states. Of course I do, but um, I'm much more on the ball about that. Uh, and I don't, but I don't I have quite the same pressure upon me as I had in the first. Uh, well, certainly during the period of my early treatments and diagnosis, uh, which is really quite intense. But you can't live at that level of. You can't live life at at that level of intensity for long. It's just it's too much, and inevitably some of it falls away. But you, you gain things, at least I feel I've gained things from that. I think, I think that it's changed me very, very positively, Positively, um, the whole experience.
0: What, what kind of things have you gained?
1: Um, well, uh, the, I mean, all these things are, come out in the book, but I suppose a greater appreciation of beauty Beauty has always been important to me. Well, certainly from a very early age, it has been. And uh, by that, I mean my interest in the arts and so forth. Um, but um, especially natural beauty. And also, I mean, I listened to, I listened to Schubert and, and um, Beethoven a lot while I was incapacitated by radiotherapy or chemotherapy. And they were a great source of solace to me, but not just solace. They were just they just swept me away with their music and, uh, it's, I appreciated the music so much more and it just, I didn't know, it just, a, it just deepened my appreciation of life. Um, and of course when at my age, I'm now 74, um, you know, there's, um, it's very difficult to hang on to those sort of, That sort of appreciation, some people can, and they don't necessarily have to have to undergo a serious illness in order to do so. But um, a lot of people lose it, Uh, but I've never lost it. And it's uh, partly because of the way that Bante has uh presented the Dharma to us in the West because he had a, a wonderful aesthetic sense himself, sensibility himself. And I picked up on that a lot. And I spent a lot of time with him. I knew him extremely well. We were, he wasn't just my teacher. We were good friends. And we often talked about literature and music and so on and so forth and art.
0: Mm-hmm. Some people who are listening to this may not kn- know much about Tri Ratna. So Bhante was, uh, again, Sangharakshita who founded uh, what is now called the Tri Ratna Buddhist Order. And Devamatra and myself were both order members in uh, in this. And Winter's publications is part of Tri Ratna, though publishers more widely as well. And, uh, yeah, people call him Bhante. We call him Bhante as a sort of uh, honorific, I suppose.
1: Well, it means Venerable Sir, it's a term of, uh, well, a term of respect offered to a monk, even though he wasn't a monk, (laughs) not at the time anyway.
0: (laughs) One one of the things reading your book that is so, well, it's sort of delicious, it's not just delightful, it's sort of delicious, is it's clear that you were writing about what was happening at the time it was happening. It doesn't feel like a book in which you're recounting previous memories um, the there's so much dialogue you have a sort of actor's ear or possibly even a scriptwriter's ear for stories for uh, nuance in the conversation and i imagine you would have been quite well obviously you were quite poorly during some of the treatments you know energy was very low and you were uh you were quite knocked out during particularly when the treatments were just carrying sort of on and on and you're your body was weakening, um, and yet you continued to write. In in what way was that part of your practice? I suppose of.
1: Well, it was it was a very important part of what helped me through it. Because, uh, as I say, as I said earlier, I wanted to objectify my experience. That helps you to understand it better. Um, And that means you've really got to focus your mind. And believe me, when your mind is in a state of chemo brain, that's not easy, Uh, exacerbated by hormone therapy, which, um, you know, has its own impact on the mind. And I can remember uh, sometimes sitting at my desk for uh, a whole morning determined to write something and I'd come out with a sentence or two, and that would be all I could do. I'd keep drifting away from what I was doing. I had to bring my, you know, focus my energy constantly and try to focus on the words. Try and work out what it was I was trying to communicate. Um, uh, but it was. I also took it in the spirit of a, a challenge. Um, uh, it's part of the spirit that I, I think has did, governed my life throughout, and um, I just got on with it. I don't know. I mean, I had to, I felt I had to do it. I didn't think that much about it. I just did it. I just wanted to get it get it done, and I, I suppose I wanted it to to be as true as it possibly could be. Of course, all writing is fiction. I understand that. There's no question, <laughs> uh, and much of what is in my book is fiction. But at least it's based on fact, and it's based on my actual experience. But of course, we interpret our experience, as as we all know. So it's a it's a version of that. It's as close as I can get to presenting you with the truth of what was going on for me. Uh, But I think also, and I'm sure this is true because I've spoken to enough people now to to understand that it is, that um, in doing that, uh, much of what I wrote about is not just to do with me, it's universal human experience. I think that's one reason why I' have had so much appreciation for the book because I really had more than I ever expected, and it keeps on happening and, and, and sometimes in quite surprising ways
0: hmm. well'll come back to the uh, impact of the book and and what it's been like for you um, talking to people who have now read it who who haven't you know who may have gone through a similar experience um, but I'm curious before we move on about uh men and Men in cancer treatment. We were talking the other day, and you were saying that um, your oncologist was wondering about whether or not you'd come and speak to a group of people who have cancer and are undergoing treatment, and, and saying that um, you know it was it was difficult for her to get or them to get men to attend those groups, and you know it's prostate cancer that you have. There's it's a you know in times it's a they're very frank bits in the book about. Uh, like swollen testicles which wasn't of course part of the cancer and and endless questions about erections and (laughs) all sorts of things um like did you when you when you were thinking about uh, publishing this book did you also have in mind the fact that like in a way men need to have ways of 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 talking or thinking about this kind of experience
1: well yes um because I know just how difficult it is for men. Um, with this, in this regard, men, uh, I think generally have a different approach to life uh, uh, from women in all sorts of ways. I was talking about this with my oncologist when I saw her last week, because actually what she'd asked me to do was to go over to uh, a place called the Maggie's Center, which is a cafe uh, where they have support services for people with cancer. And, you know, she she said to me a little bit sheepishly she said I know it's just my gender prejudice but I forget to send men over there and don't think about it uh partly I think because I think they wouldn't go would you go over and give us some feedback so I went over and I gave her some pretty strong feedback but <laughs> well, basically I wasn't surprised at, but it, it, it's just not the sort of thing men want to do I just know I mean it's like the that I, I went into the center and Uh, I was very warmly welcomed, given a cup of tea. uh, And, you know, someone talked to me straight away, a volunteer, and then uh, uh, a woman came over to me who was a psychologist, and we started talking. And then I spoke to a radiographer. Now, they were all women. And I think that whatever for however you count for this um men just find that very difficult i think then i said to my oncologist i said look i think men need other men and it's got nothing to do with misogyny or, or anything anything of that sort it's just uh it's just it just seems to be a, a fact of the male experience um i like i probably will talk with her more about that because she was clearly quite intrigued by what i was saying and seemed to sort of understand actually um and I, I hope that maybe we can take that further, and there might be something that I can do to help.
0: Right, well, it's a sort of public health truism that men are less likely to um, go and, and get tested if they're concerned about something, or you know, they're just for some for a whole range of reasons. No doubt, there are barriers to. To uh, accessing services and things like that.
1: Yeah, well, my father was classic. I mean, he he he, he just didn't want to go anywhere near doctors. Uh, mind you, my mother wasn't much better, but that was because she worked uh, as a nurse uh, later on in life. And, and um, well, after she'd been stopped being a scullery maid, I mean, she went to she left school when she was fourteen. Uh, but um, anyway, she worked in hospitals from from her late teens onwards, and as a nurse and. She would always shake her head if I mentioned, you know, well, why don't you go and see your doctor? And said, oh, no, Michael, I've seen, I've seen them make too many mistakes. And she was absolutely contemptuous about the comments put down by the, uh, the young doctor uh, on my father's death certificate. She said he didn't die of that. I know perfectly well what he died of. So, so in, in my case, it was both my parents, but my father in particular, he was terrified of going to see a doctor in case there was something wrong. And as a consequence, he had a, an enlarged heart, which uh, was not treated, and he died younger than he needed, needed to have done. So it's very common, I know. Um, and I feel that in myself, I'm very reluctant to go unnecessarily, what I consider to be unnecessarily, to see a doctor. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know how you explain it. Men are more like that. And, uh, but I think they need help with they need help from other men I've I'm, I'm absolutely got, got no doubts about that whatsoever which is why I live in men's, a men's community and have done all my life I value that I, I value living with men as, And I don't know many women who value living just with women it, it sort of makes sense mm. not a popular view but it's 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 certainly one which um, um, I I I'm not, I'm, I express unashamedly because I think it's true.
0: It's also clear that, I mean, you had, you had symptoms, didn't you? So you were in a situation where you actually had a, a, you know, a scare, not a scare, but you know, something where it was like, oh, okay, there is something definitely wrong. But a lot of men particularly with prostate cancer have no or low level symptoms and, um, yeah.
1: Yeah. But it was late on. I mean, I'd already, it was clear that by that time, the cancer was already pretty serious. You know, blood coming out with your, a large spurt of blood coming out with your urine is not, not something which should happen. Um, <laughs> I knew that straight away. <laughs> so I didn't hesitate on that occasion to go and seek help, of course, but other mi- you know, minor things that, you know, you just don't even think about.
0: We asked a a number of people, um, some Buddhists, some in the medical field for endorsements to, you know, to read your book earlier on. And um, William Stones wrote one of the endorsements. And I thought he pointed to something that was uh, very helpful, which was he was saying like a lot of cancer is discussed in terms of a metaphor of battle or fight. And, And certainly we know that, um, the sort of idea of death or dying or uh, or succumbing—I mean, all of this language that we use—you know, succumbing to illness, as if dying was an unnatural event or a failure or something. There's just none of that language in your. Book. I mean, if there's a battle to be had, you you don't use that metaphor. But if they, if you were to use that metaphor, it would be with your mind, wouldn't it? that's
1: right? Well, that's the only time I used the, the metaphor. Actually, I knew. Uh, I think I say it fairly early on. I knew immediately that the battle I was facing ahead of me was not with my body, but with my mind. And that's because, of course, you can't do anything. You can't. I can't do anything about my body. <laughs> uh, well, within, of course, I can. I can undergo the treatments and try to stay healthy and all that. But ultimately. It's really un, un, it's out of my control, but I can not I can control what goes on in my mind. So, um, But that's not a battle with cancer. That's a battle with my mental states, mm. uh, which is very different. Um, facing up to the cancer is just facing up to one of the four sites, sickness and the implication of death and its association with old age. Um, but, um, you know, that's just the way it is. I mean, life is like that and... I feel you've got to face it full on, head on. But um, no, I didn't use that kind of language. I wasn't thinking like that. Uh, sometimes I would I would joke about it a little bit and say, uh, either this thing's going to kill me or I'm going to kill it. But uh, it was... Uh, 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 I dropped that pretty early on because I I thought that wasn't the most helpful way to to view it, actually. Uh, Hence the the title, really, Entertaining Cancer, Treating It as as a Guest, an unwelcome one, admittedly, but uh, one which um, has landed on your doorstep. You can't, you know, it's forced its way into the house. You've got to somehow um, deal with it in, in the most positive way. Treat it kindly; it might treat you kindly back. It might shrink away. It hasn't done actually, but <laughs> you know, that's, that's just again, that's just life.
0: Mm. You spent a lot of time in uh, various treatment rooms with a lot of other people who had cancer. Um, what is your, uh, I, I suppose, yeah, what did you notice about other people that you were spending time with who were also in treatment? I suppose, was what was what was helpful and what was less helpful for them?
1: Well, I think there are a number of things I noticed. Uh, some people seemed very withdrawn. Others seemed to want to talk. Um, I think in the case of some of the people that I observed, um, I remember one woman in particular who was, uh, she hardly ever spoke to anybody. Uh, and I was often waiting in the radiotherapy department for treatments. And um Uh, she would be, she was a Sinhalese woman actually, and she was chanting all the time as if to just sort of keep on the chant and, 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 but in a way which didn't seem to me to be really helping her. It's like she was praying, praying and hoping and hoping that, you know, for the best result. And that that was an extreme example of an attitude which I encountered a number of times. Uh, People swirling upon hope in a way which was unrealistic or unhelpful um I try to avoid hope because I've I understand that hope in that context is it's just being unrealistic things may turn out as you wish but maybe not um it's best just to deal with what's there um but uh, other people, I mean, there was a whole range of responses. I mean, I remember, and I've given an account of this one man who got very, very angry uh, for all sorts of reasons on the chemotherapy ward um, and um, just exploding. I mean, I can understand he was, he, was, he was quite a bit older than me. He was about 77 at the time, I think. And he, it was his second round. His cancer had recurred um, and he was a very explosive character by temperament. Uh, but it, he really made life very difficult for everybody else on the ward. And um, Diane Arta who's a young doctor who I live with and who has read my book, said he, f- he thought that he really cap- I really captured something which needed to be better known, just how difficult it is for, uh, for nurses and doctors sometimes dealing with their patients. Because he said, what you account in the book is very common. I mean, I only saw that one instance of it, but it was quite extreme when he exploded. It really was like you didn't want to be in the same room as him. Um, so those—that's th- th- two examples. There's the more positive responses of people who saw it as um, they could say they could see that it was it was uh, giving them a, giving them a new perspective on life, one which was expanding their horizons, um, one which they were pleased to have. And that they knew would not have arisen for them, at least, had they not got the cancer. Um, there's, there's, uh, there are many, many instances of people saying, you know, when, when they get their cancer, get a cancer diagnosis, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. And why? And I think the answer to that question is that they, meet, they feel more alive. It suddenly wakes you up. Oh my God! This thing could happen any to you know. I, I could. This thing could kill me at any time. And um, a very striking example of this actually by uh, um, of, um, was the, the case of Claudio Abado. I don't know if you know who he is, of the very famous Italian conductor. He was for many years, well, he, was, he was the successor, uh, Herbert von Karajan's successor as uh, music director and principal conductor for the Berlin Philharmonica. And towards, uh, well, I think he was in his 70s, probably in his 70s. Uh, when, no, maybe a bit earlier than that, he was diagnosed with a pretty serious cancer. Um, and he resigned his post uh, as, uh, uh, in Berlin, the first musical director to do so. Um, it was unprecedented, but he said it wasn't the only consideration. Anyway, um, when he'd recovered from his treatment, which in his case was mostly surgery, uh, there was a young com- was a, a young British conductor actually who's one of his proteges was talking about him and said that um, it, what was so exciting about working with Claudio was that um, there was a, there was a certain uh, sort of unknown element entered into his conducting after that and he said you had a sense of somebody who knew that this could happen this thing could uh, be all over at any moment There's a certain urgency in what he was doing, which brought out the most refined sort of um, performances from him or or from the orchestras that he was conducting. Uh, He's a much loved conductor, by the way. He he did eventually die, I think the cancer recurred, but um, that's a very um, high profile example of someone uh, really learning from what what life had delivered to them and making something positive out of it. Taking things to another level, in his case, Um, that was certainly the the impression of this young conductor whose name I can't remember, he's quite well known himself now, but um, he 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 said he was really struck by that. So there's a whole range of different responses. And of course, I saw people who were very bitter about the cancer. Um, Others were just resigned and didn't know what to do, confused. Um, others who were just sort of taking it in in the most positive spirit. It's quite a way, quite a wide range of responses. Yeah, the whole range of of, of of what's best and worst in humanity, in, you know, in, in in a sort of microscopic kind of way, I suppose. Yeah,
0: I mean, with, without without trying to be facile about it at all, like, actually, we're all we are all dying, we're all awake, but not as awake as we could be. So obviously, you know, this is uh, people who have a cancer diagnosis are, are not in another world. It's just you know, there's something there's something that could happen to any of us at any point in time.
1: Yeah, they're more uh, in this world. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they're more in it because the reality of this world is, is, is facing you a bit more yeah. um, uh, sort of um, uncompromisingly. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, in, in, in very different sort of uh, spheres, I've often thought, like, actually, when there's a kind of intensity in a situation, that's when it's when it's possible to see most clearly, uh, and to value things most clearly as well, you know. Yeah, I suppose it's just a very particular moment when your body's at stake in that kind of way, and it's death that you're talking about, and and you're up against it, you know. Mm.
1: I th- that, that's that's just a, reminded me of something, actually. It comes back to one of your earlier questions. I think one of the things that people seem to be really appreciating about the book is that I've been very frank about everything, that I've not sort of tried to dodge things I mean, there's, there's that's always, there's not always an element somewhere lurking in the back of my mind, you know, I had to be careful, you know, this, uh I might, I, you know, I didn't want myself, I didn't want to dodge anything, actually, but there's, you know, our motives of, of, for doing things are never completely pure. And, you know, the so elements would creep in. And I'd have to sort of, sort of work out what, why, 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 what, what am I trying to avoid? And, This is not good, is it? Don't I need to look a bit more deeply at this issue?
0: Can you give an example?
1: Well, I think that um, when um, it wasn't conscious at the time, I don't think it was conscious when I was writing particularly, but looking back at it, I think it is that when my oncologist told me at the end of the radiotherapy that there was a 50% chance that the cancer would recur, um, I sort of, um, I didn't want to hear that. (laughs) <laughs> i was in it for the cure <laughs> but uh you know the cure seemed a little bit more elusive than she was letting on at the beginning and um um i had to i spent a, a good i don't know 24 hours really working through that uh working it out and and coming to terms with it coming to, well coming to grips with it and then coming to terms with this uh, and then just moving on beyond it um and um uh, so there's a, there's a whole section in my book where I, I, I think I, I mentioned Susie Littler, who was a friend of mine who died of cancer when she was 34. She be, actually was a hugely successful actress, um, um, playing all the leading juvenile leads at the National Theatre by the time. I lost sight of her, but um, uh, she died of cancer when she was 34. People, all her friends were saying, look, you, she's not admitting it. We know she's got cancer. I mean, it was a very complicated life she was living at that time. I know things I'm not going to say here, but, um, uh, she came to mind because I thought, well, there's an element of that at work here with you. You've got to let it go. Um, so anything like any kind of resistance to facing the truth, the reality, I try to sort of push away because it doesn't help you. Uh, which I didn't think it was going to help me anyway. And, you know, now my cancer has metastasized. It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm definitely on the way out. My death warrant has definitely been issued. Um, uh, it may be a few years, who knows, it, there's no sort of, um, uh, all the, all, all doctors can do is dealing deal in averages. I mean, it, it on average, seven or eight more years for me if, I, if, I, if things go well. Uh, it could be more than that. It could be less. It could be. It could end very quickly, who knows. But, um, you know, wh- when, you, when you come, when you reach the final lap, as it were, uh, it's not that bad when you've had five years leading up to it, uh, which I have had. I've had plenty of warning. I've been living with cancer for five years. Why, why should I be surprised about this? And actually, when I was told, it didn't surprise me at all. I was kind of half expecting it. Uh, even though it was not what I would have chosen, but you know, so be it. And then you start to think about other possibilities. Well, you know, what's the positive side of death? You get a new body, that's great. Uh, This one's one's definitely, this this, this body is definitely past its use by date. I could do the new body. Why not? The great adventure, as some people describe uh, death, is before me, it's getting closer. Um, You know, it opens up all sorts of potentially exciting possibilities.
0: It strikes me that you're not afraid of yourself.
1: Uh, I, don't <laughs> I don't know. I don't know What do you mean by that?
0: Well, uh, I suppose um, in Subuti's endorsement of your book, he says something about like you've passed the test of cancer. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, cancer is a test. You get to know you get to know what you can and can't. Bear and what your limits are, and what you're able to uh, move towards. You know, hopefully not all at one go, as you say, you've been living with this for five years. But it sounds to me, just in the way you're talking about um, your own death, that you're not afraid of what you're not afraid of of encountering something in your experience that you can't over time process or accept.
1: Well, I would hope that's true, Um, whether or not it actually is. But, um, and again, I think it goes right back to the, my origins and my theatrical, certainly my theatre ambitions. I really, really wanted to succeed. I didn't just want to be good at my work and I was good at my work. I got enough feedback to, to make that absolutely clear. I wanted to make the top, um, and I would have done anything to make sure I could, except it was making me so damned unhappy. I had to give it up, (laughs) but, uh, but then that was a part of my learning process as well. It, it, I had to let that in. I really don't want to do this anymore. I didn't understand. Didn't really understand why, but I, I kind of faced it, and it could have worked out very badly. I mean, I remember uh, leaning over uh, the parapet of um, Hungerford Bridge um, across the Thames uh, between the um, between Embankment and the South Bank and. Uh, after seeing a particularly grim film and being tempted to throw myself over because I was so, so utterly um, appalled at what I'd just seen. And because was a, the culmination of reading all the wrong books, been reading some really depressing French authors, uh, novelists. <laughs> uh, Blase Sandra probably was the worst, Sartre didn't help either. Uh, and um, all these films from South America dealing with the political situation there, and it was, it was just too much. It was like a big, big dose of Sangsara all at once, and I didn't know what the answers to it were. And um, I could have just ended it there. I knew that I wouldn't actually somehow. There was some something in me which wouldn't let that happen. But, but uh, I could imagine without finding the Dharma that something of that sort might have happened in the end.
0: I am very glad that that was not your fate <laughs> and destiny. So, so,
1: so, so am I, as it happens.
0: Uh, I mean, I was thinking, the, you know, you write a book and it's it's a, it, it has to have a good old narrative shape, doesn't it? You know, there's the sort of dramatic moment and then there's the ups and downs of the treatments and then, you know, the book leaves at a point where uh the possibility of cure is there the possibility that maybe one day the cancer will come back is there, but you know and now uh and now we're in a different you're in a different phase. you do know that the cancer is back you've got new sets of um, decisions to make about treatment and uh, you know you're you're in it again
1: mm, that's right uh,
0: so uh yeah we're going to uh hopefully we'll also just keep in touch along the way and continue to uh, support the work that the book is doing to i don't know give give some inspiration and some ways of doing things and uh, some humor uh to all those who are in that world yeah is there anything that you'd like to leave us with david mitra on this occasion
1: um gosh um Gratitude, I suppose. Gratitude that Windhorse published the book. Gratitude that Sabuti pushed me to putting it forward to you. <laughs> uh, um, and everybody who supported me throughout, you know, a, a wonderful period of my life, but very n- not, well, how would you put it? Uh, uh, not an easy one at the same time, a strange combination of things, really. Um And gratitude to to Bandai. I mean, Sangarashtra, the founder of Tri Ratna, because I don't think I could have done this without him. Um, I learned so much from him as a friend and as a teacher. Uh, I still do from his writings. And um, I think I've been very blessed in life. And this is, you know, the latest blessing I've received. The book is out. People are reading it. Uh, I'm sure there's, there must be some people out there who are not enjoying it or don't like it or whatever, but they're not going to tell me. But I'm getting so much appreciation, and that makes such a difference. Um, it makes you feel, well, it was it was all worthwhile. The whole process was worth, worthwhile, a way of giving in a way which uh, wouldn't have been open to me had I not had the cancer. Um, so, I, I, yes, I think my, my – Final feeling on the whole thing is one of gratitude, and that will continue, I'm sure.
0: Well, thank you, David Mitra, for writing this book. Um, we'll put some links down below so that people can find out where they can get hold of the book and uh, where they can go and see you at a Zoom or in person launch or other talk about the book. And um, yeah, we're wishing you all the best. We'll keep in touch. Yes. And thank you for coming here this afternoon.
1: And thank you very much for inviting me to do this.
0: Wintour's Publications is part of the Tri Ratna Buddhist community. And this podcast is sponsored by Future Dharma Fund, a Buddhist fundraising charity which helps fund Dharma projects across the world, including ours. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to them to help them fund current and future projects like ours. You can find out more about Wintour's publications by going to our website.